Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible book. Lord, this book that contains everything we need for this life. Lord, it is life itself. It's living, it's powerful. When it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual, that which is of this world and that which is heavenly. And Father, we pray your Holy Spirit now would just reveal and help us to understand the things that we look at. Uh, we recognize, Lord, that the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, but Lord, we have been born again by that Spirit, by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that he would just help us to understand and comprehend the things that we study this morning. Um, and Lord, that we would grow together in knowledge and in grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to say as a, as a pastor, this particular chapter is one of those chapters that you kind of want to study. Um, it's such a great portion of scripture because it just tells us as it is. It tells us about the world that we're living in. It confirms in a sense, just purely because of the subject matter, that the Bible is true. These things, bear in mind, were written some roughly 2,000 years ago. and Everything we read here is a, a prophetic utterance of what we are experiencing right now in the days in which we live. Um, we're going to see Paul just giving Timothy that encouragement um, just to carry on, standing tall, to stand strong. You know, although Paul had experienced um, criticism and um, deceit from those that had walked with him for a time, and um, we'll see that highlighted as well. Um, we see also the the statement that um, Paul says, "But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, love, and patience, and persecutions, and afflictions." And he goes on and says, "You know, you've seen all of these things. You've seen the way I've lived my life." And he says to Timothy, "Now you live your life the same way." Well, what a great teaching to a body of believers. So we'll, we'll go in and we'll just see how far we get this morning. Uh, with this study, but what a, what a portion of scripture this is. Now, I, I found this, I thought this was quite amusing. Uh, apparently this genuinely was uh, a picture on the outside of the church. Now, you can't see that because for some reason that's come up on your screen uh, in the wrong colour. Oh no, there we go, we go through. Right, this was a sign in front of a modern church. Now, I, I, I'm hoping this was a joke. Right? It says, no old-fashioned constraints, home of the 7% tithe. Only seven commandments, your choice, it said. Fifteen-minute sermons, uh, and all you ever wanted and less. Now, I hope that was a joke, but sadly, that is kind of where a lot of modern churches are. Um, they, they try not to put constraints on people, you know, it's okay, we, we, we move with the times, you know, the Bible's a bit archaic and we don't want to be tied into some of the things it says, uh, and so on, and, you know, you don't have to give if you don't want to, and, you know, the commandments, well, they're really more things, that they're, they're kind of observations, really, that we can follow if we want to, uh, and, and who wants a long sermon anyway? Uh, you can all be quiet because you're going to get it anyway, so. Um, but, you know, so often, that's what modern churches are like. And it is so sad, and we're going to see in a sense this come out as we look at what Paul says to Timothy, uh, the direction, not just of the church, but of the world was heading in. Now, I got this as well uh, <coughs> from one uh, commentary. Uh, it's I'm talking, speaking of, of course, of apostasy in the last days, and the antidote to that being the word of God. But it said this, in the universe there is God, and there are people and things. We should worship God, 
love people and use things. If we start worshipping ourselves, we ignore God and start loving things and using people. Uh, this is the formula for a miserable life. I thought how interesting that is. You know, if we start worshipping ourselves, if we start putting ourselves first, then we ignore God and we start loving things and using people. But the way it should be again, the second bullet point, we should worship God. God should be first. Seek first the kingdom of God. We should love people and we should use things. They're a means to an end. They're not an end in themselves. Uh, And yet, as we're going to go on and see as we jump straight into the text, this is what's happened in the days in which we live. Now, Paul says to Timothy, this, no, okay, this is a certainty, you know, and this is building on what he's already says, because he said, this, no, also. So we've, we've seen a lot uh, of things already in these first two chapters of this second letter. Uh, he says that in the last days, perilous times shall come. The word perilous there, the idea is dangerous or hard to deal with. I mean, you think of the idea of maybe handling a snake, um, I don't know if any of you have ever picked up and held a snake. Um, I mean, I, I've held a couple of uh, non-venomous snakes. Um, they're kind of like scary enough in their own way. But, you know, you see people that hold and handle venomous snakes and they have to be handled in a certain way. They're dangerous. You know, just one slight wrong move and, you know, it could be a very uh, sad story. Well, you know, these are the days we're living in. And we have a, a snake, the serpent, the devil. Um, that is behind all of these things. But we are living in dangerous times. We, we've read already this morning uh, about Christians that are being persecuted, that are, are experiencing firsthand just how dangerous it is to be a Christian. Now, we are very fortunate, very blessed in, in the West, as we typically refer to it, that we've got the freedom we have. But so much of the rest of the world, we've got over 50 nations here that we've been going through and looking at in our studies and when we're meeting together that are persecuted. We're Christian, where Christians are not allowed to meet together. They're not allowed copies of the scripture. You know, Christianity is outlawed. It's forbidden. You know, it's a dangerous time to believe in God, to believe the Bible. And Paul says this, know this also that in the last days, dangerous, perilous times shall come. The idea also is savage. And that's again exactly what we see when we look at the world. The attitude of the world toward Christians. Why? Well, because we want to stand for something. You know, we've got a moral compass. We've got something that is non-negotiable. We're not prepared to change the fundamentals of our faith. And yes, we are fundamentalists. And the world goes, because, of course, the media has told everybody now that it's wrong to be a fundamentalist. No, it's not. You know, a maths teacher is a fundamentalist. A maths teacher believes that two plus two always will equal four. You know, you're never going to get five. And somebody will say, well, that's, that's not very tolerant, is it? But, you see, it's not about tolerance or intolerance. It's about the, the, the fundamentals of mathematics are what they are. You can't change them. The fundamentals are not a bad thing. In fact, we need fundamentals in life. You know, if you think of a a football referee, a football referee is a fundamentalist. They stick to the rules of the game and they make sure the game is played according to those rules. All right, a lot of people don't like the referee, particularly if decisions go against them. And that kind of gives you an indication of the problem the world has. Because when 
someone says something other than the way the world wants it to go, they complain, just as supporters would do a referee. But the problem is not with the fundamentals. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a fundamentalist. The issue is, what are those fundamentals? Now, there are some religions in the world, there are some beliefs and some practices where those fundamentals are very dangerous. But not the Bible. Not the word of God that has been given to us that tells us that we should love God first and foremost and that the second most important commandment is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But the Bible also says that we should speak the truth in love. And that's why the world doesn't like it because the world doesn't really like truth. It likes its own version of truth but it doesn't like what the word of God says if it's in conflict with man's views and man's opinions and we'll see this come out. Now, as you can see there in the text on the screen, it says that the same word is used to describe the violent demoniacs of Gardea. That's in Matthew eight twenty eight. Uh, if you remember, they they come out against uh, this, uh, this this man that's uh, full of these um, uh, demonic uh, beings. Uh, and the same word is used there. The same word that we have translated perilous here is used of them. They were violent. And uh, one commentator suggested, he said, does this suggest that the violence of the last times will be energized by demons? It's just a suggestion that was thrown out. But quite possibly so. You know, I do think we will see more and more demonic activity in the last days. And I think Revelation clearly points to that. I mean, we see many examples in the book of Revelation itself. People are becoming more and more open to the idea of paranormal things. There's so many uh, programs that you can get on television now on all these various channels, you know, investigating the paranormal and talking about demonic beings and so on. And the world, for some reason, has a fascination with those things. Yeah, and we've seen in the last 50 years, certainly, and particularly how music has been a vehicle for people. I mean, Jeff was sharing his testimony earlier. You know, but many of you will be aware of how music has been a vehicle um, to try and bring people into the occult or worship in the occult. And these people have no idea what they're getting into. So maybe these perilous times that we're speaking of, they're not just going to be dangerous from a a perspective that the world is anti-Christian, but dangerous in the very real sense that Satan is actively looking to cause trouble for those that believe in Jesus Christ. We see it in Revelation chapter 12, how Satan turns his attention upon Jesus and those who are his, i.e. the church, and because Jesus is taken out of the way, Jesus has also ascended to the Father, the church will also be taken out of the way. Satan's hatred and attention will be turned fully upon the nation of Israel, so much so that at the midpoint of the tribulation they'll be forced to flee from their land. Satan hates anything to do with God or God's people. I just ask you to turn to Acts chapter 20. I haven't got these scriptures, but it's just helpful to look at what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Now again, this is the church that Paul, that Timothy is now pastoring. Um, but Acts chapter 20, Paul has his last journey to see his uh, brothers, those of the church that he planted. Um, and verse 15 of Acts 20 just says, And from thence we sailed and came the next day over against Cloas, and the next day we arrived at Salmos and tarried at uh, Trogodinium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia, for he hasted, uh, if it were possible, 
for him to be at Jerusalem uh, the day of Pentecost. So Paul has got it to January. He wants to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. But he gets to the beach at Miletus, and the, it's just not very far from Ephesus. The, the Ephesian elders come down and meet him on the, on the beach there. And we read, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Uh, and when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying weight of the Jews. It's incredible, isn't it, that Paul you know, points to his own life and effectively says, you know, look at my life as a testimony of the way to live as a Christian. You know, could, could you do that? Could you say to the, the young people we have here in Sunday school, you know, look at my life, follow my example. That, that's effectively what Paul is doing. We should be able to do that. In humility, not, it's not boasting, it's what the Lord has done. Um, and he says, how I have uh, kept back nothing, oh, sorry, I have kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and of faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, uh, now behold, I go in the spirit unto, or sorry, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. So Paul knew that he wasn't in for an easy ride, and yet he was just being obedient to the call of God on his life. But he says this, and this is one of the great verses in the Bible and in the New Testament, is, but none of these things move me. What a statement. You know, he's just talking there of bonds and afflictions waiting him. All the things that are ahead, the difficulties he knows he's going to face. But that, that doesn't concern me, it doesn't move me. He says, neither count I my life dear unto myself. He says, you know, I've realized that my life in itself has no intrinsic value other than what it is used for God's purpose. He says, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. What a lovely statement that is that Paul says that, you know, his life is all about preaching the gospel. His whole life is consumed with this one thing. You know, nothing else matters to him other than he preaches the gospel. And as long as the Lord gives him as many days as he has left at this point, he's saying, you know what, I don't care about my own life, I don't care what happens, I just want to preach the gospel. Because of his love for his brethren, the Jews, for the Gentiles, and just out of love for God himself. But then he says, and now I behold that uh, you are all, uh, uh, sorry, and now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take um, you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. What a faithful servant Paul had been. You know, the bits that are easy, the bits that are not so easy in Scripture. Paul had, had, had just declared the whole lot. He'd gone through all the counsel of God, just sharing them, that which is on God's heart, which the Lord had placed on his, and he passed on. And he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I find this so important because the instruction here is not to set up this program and that program, not to build a great worship team or whatever else, but feed the church of God. You know, that, that's the instruction that Paul gives those who are overseeing this fellowship. 
We need spiritual food. If without spiritual food, not only do we go hungry, but we become weak, we become ineffective. Over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which is purchased with his own blood. And it says, for I know this. And this is in, in, in direct connection with that previous verse. We must be fed. We must understand these things because, and he says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He says there will be people that will come in that won't care anything about the flock. They're not going to care about the Lord or the things of the Lord. They're, they're grievous wolves, he says. They're savages. He says, also of your own selves, this is a scary statement, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. We've talked about this before, the whole issue of pride and how people want some sort of position and they love to draw people after them and, you know, whatever. They were setting up maybe their own meetings and trying to draw people and say, oh, don't, don't listen to Timothy, don't listen to Paul, don't listen to the other elders. You know, you come and we'll, 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 we'll study these things and just drawing people away, teaching things that weren't right, that weren't godly, that weren't scriptural. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And again, an incredible statement. Paul says, you know, I've wept over you as a fellowship. I've pleaded before the Lord that he would hold you close to him. You know, and just such a, a pastoral heart we see with Paul here. But the most important thing was that these people would be fed the word of God because he knew that these dangerous times would come. And Paul is now saying to Timothy here in this letter to Timothy, the last letter that Paul would write, as he'd already warned them that these perilous times are going to come. And by the way, the last days, to be, to be clear scripturally, goes from the time of the book of Acts right through to the end. Peter makes it clear that they were living in the last days at that point. We don't know how long a period of time we've got. It's a period of God's uh, grace that he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. But we are now in the last days. And every day that passes is one day closer to the Lord's return for his church and one day closer to Antichrist revealing himself and setting himself up on the world stage. You know, we've got a church sadly that because of this complete misunderstanding of eschatology the end times that it's got this idea by and large that the church is going to win the world for christ and then when the church has won the world for christ then jesus will return you can go to most established churches today and you will find that that is what the leaders of that church believe in one form or another you know, well, I don't know about you, if you look around the the landscape right now, it doesn't look very much like the world is going to be converted. It looks like it's going very much the other way. You know, there is not a very bright future for the organized church. It seems to be crumbling. <clears throat> if you talk about the, the last days in regard to Israel... Well, again, speaking of the end of the age, the end time, the great tribulation, that's talking about a very difficult time. Jeremiah speaks a bit about the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's not going to get better. It's not going to get to the point that everybody's happy and everybody knows the Lord before the Lord himself comes back. And as regards to the church, we have this warning, we have this hope 
that not only will be there this apostasy, but there'll also be the catching away of the saints, uh, or the rapture, the harpazo, uh, where the believers are taken from this world, we return to the place uh, that Jesus has been preparing for us, as he said in John 14. And once again, you know, I, I'm convinced, uh, utterly convinced that the media is playing a large part in preparing the world for the rapture. Un- unconsciously, the world is getting ready for this to happen. And there will be a whole range of different stories that, that start to, to hit the headlines when suddenly all the Christians on planet Earth are taken. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you know, you, some of you may have seen the, the film Left Behind or read the book uh, by Tim LaHaye. Uh, you know, and there's a bit of dramatization and things there, but just trying to get across just what this is going to be like. There will be airline pilots that are believers that will suddenly disappear. There will be people driving cars, you know, just in their daily jobs at work, suddenly disappear. I thought it was very interesting, and I don't know if any of you have seen or are into, uh, maybe some of the older folk are not particularly bothered, but uh, the recent Marvel films, which um, in a sense they're relatively harmless, um, you know, they're just kind of built on the comics and stuff like that, but in the, the most recent ones, and I don't want to do kind of a spoiler, uh, but the um, not the most recent one, the one before that, um, which was called Infinity War, um, the baddie suddenly made half of all the universe disappear. And all these beings suddenly just kind of disappear and disintegrate. And I thought, how interesting it is that the world is watching these things and the whole mindset is getting ready for potentially an event just like that, where suddenly people will just disappear from existence. And they've already been given a story that it's going to be the aliens that have done it. Now, how this will be spun by the governments of the world, by Antichrist, who's going to be the one to step on the world scene and try and calm everything down afterwards, well, we don't know what they'll do. But I'm sure that these things that we're seeing going on are just a precursor. They're just getting the world ready. Um, happens to be a great opportunity to use these things to evangelize, by the way. Uh, we can use them and point people to it and say, by the way, this is what the Bible says is going to happen. You know, you watch the science fiction and people think, you know, oh, you know. But actually, the Bible says it's going to be just like that. See, the Bible doesn't teach that the church will bring in the millennium and convert the world. No, quite the contrary. The Bible teaches very, very clearly that Jesus is going to return. He's going to establish his kingdom. Instead, what we see are these 19 things that Paul is going to go on now to talk about. He speaks about the days preceding that, how the world is going to be. And these are the things that are going on right now in the days in which we're living. Paul is painting the picture saying that it's not going to get lots better, it's actually going to get worse. And as always, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. You know, man's heart is wicked, it's incurably wicked, is what Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells us. Uh, and we see man's wickedness just coming to the floor, to the fore as the, the boundaries that once existed are gradually being eroded. 
these 19 indicators. We'll go through. We're told, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now, we've joked a number of times. It kind of, you could translate that men shall be lovers of selfies. You know, but actually, think about that. You know, we, we've got a generation that's growing up that are just, just intent on taking pictures of themselves. That, that's what we get. Men should be lovers of their own selves. Covetous. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. You know, we've never lived at a time, I don't think, where because of the the opportunities of materialism, because of advertising and everything else, you know, everything is set up to encourage you if it feels good, do it. If you want this, have it. If you can't afford it, borrow money, go do it. Everything is set up to, to get you to have whatever it is you want, in whatever quantities you want. And that is so closely linked with being covetous. Because the moment you become a lover of your own self, you start to look at other people, you start to look at what they've got. You start to become aware that people have got things that make them happy or seemingly make them happy and you don't have those things. And so if you had those things, then surely they're going to make you happy. So that makes you covetous. It makes you say, I want that, which makes you essentially a lover of money because money is the mechanism by which we gain most things in this world, the materialistic things. And then that leads on, doesn't it? This is not just a random list that Paul just kind of put together. Uh, There's some intent, there's some thought behind what Paul is saying here and the order in which he gives it. Because once you then start to acquire these things for yourself, what happens? Well, then you start to brag, you start to boast. You start to talk about what you've achieved. Isn't that where the world is today? You know, everybody's quite happy to talk about how successful they've been, how they've achieved this or how they've achieved that, how they managed to acquire that thing. You know, it's all about kind of keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Smiths or whatever else. You know, it's just trying to, you know, Stay ahead of the game. And then, as a result of this, not only are we boasting about what we get, but people become proud or haughty. And, and immediately we, we've kind of started on this journey, this list, you, you realize that there's no place anymore for God in people's lives. Because people are intent on making their own lives better giving themselves what they want, which means that they want to acquire all of these things. And there's no place for God in any of that. And then we start boasting about what we've done. I mean, one of the great passages of Scripture about pride is when we go to um, Daniel chapter 4 and we read about Nebuchadnezzar. You know, one night this king, who God had placed in authority, decides he's going to go for a little walk around the the tops of the, the walls in Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. And he looks at everything and thinks, wow, look what I've done. And then he gets a little visit to say, uh, oh, great king, you've not done all this. This is what God has done. God has allowed this. And you're foolish if you think you've achieved this. And, and as a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar spends seven years effectively eating grass like a cow. It's actually a medical condition, boanthropy, um, that's been observed where men literally do become effectively mad and actually will just eat grass and so on and they can survive such. Now, we see eventually Nebuchadnezzar return to his senses. Daniel, by the way, seems to be the one that looks after the king during that time. 
and helps to strengthen that bond between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And I do believe eventually that Nebuchadnezzar comes to know the Lord. Um, certainly his testimony that we have in that chapter um, speaks of this incredible um, repentant heart as a result of these things. But not so with the people of the world. The people of the world don't want to hear about repentance. They don't want to hear about God. And, and of course we live at a time now where you don't have to believe in God because, well, we've got David Attenborough, haven't we? He's answered all the questions of life in the universe. David Attenborough speaking this year at Glastonbury and got such a huge ovation. And, and this generation of people that have grown up listening to these documentaries telling him, telling us that this incredible design that we see everywhere and all the beauty and the complexity of the world in which we live and the incredible balance that exists between the, the land and the oceans and everything else is all just purely random chance. That it has nothing to do with God. It's all millions of years. That's that magic wand that we wave. But millions of years in there, anything can happen. And so we've got a people, a group of people, a generation that are growing up having no need for God at all in their lives. And so, naturally, become blasphemers. Yeah, or railers. Anything that is good, they despise. And, you know, and that which is good, they speak of as evil. And that which is evil, they speak of as good. Is exactly what Jer- uh, Isaiah said would happen. And how often do we hear people blaspheming? I mean, it, it's an everyday occurrence. And people just... Well, there's there's even companies now that are making money out of blasphemous terms. I'm sure you've seen the expression OMG. Uh, And there's various companies that are using that in their marketing, their advertising, even using it in their products and things. Uh, You know, blasphemy just permeates the world in which we live, and certainly Western culture. And nobody cares about it. I mean, of course, you say something against, you know, um, Muhammad, or you say something against Allah, and all of a sudden there's, there's flags being burnt, there's, there's protests. But somebody says something about the Lord our God, or somebody says something about Jesus Christ. Oh, and that's okay. I, I, I've said many times, I, I think that's one of the great proofs that the Bible is true. Why would the name of Jesus above every other name be the name that's singled out and used for blasphemy? If it wasn't for the fact that there is an enemy who hates the name of Jesus and wants to denigrate it to such. And as I've said before, you know, if somebody says to you, I don't believe in God, say I can prove that God exists, that Jesus exists in 15 seconds. And you start talking about Jesus and you watch how riled somebody will become. This word, blasphemers, railers, another expression. You know, but you start talking about Jesus Christ, start talking about the cross, and people get so agitated. And as I've pointed out to people, and I've had this conversation in the past, you know, I could talk about the Easter Bunny, I could talk about Father Christmas, I could talk about any other religious leader, and I could talk about them for hours, and you won't get agitated, you won't be concerned. But the moment I talk about Jesus, the moment I start talking about the fact that he loves you, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, suddenly people get quite animated and almost violent. This list goes on. Because the natural reaction to all of these things 
is that morality goes, boundaries are removed. And so typically we find that children are disobedient to parents. And I'm sure you've read articles and heard accounts, you know, of children trying to take their parents to court and all these nonsense things that are going on. But, you know, we've got a a generation of parents that grew up being disobedient to their parents. And so now when their children are disobedient to them, it's like, well, anything goes. And children are allowed to dictate the, the rules in the house. I mean, this is nonsense. This is no way a a society can function. And yet, of course, we're not allowed to to smack our children anymore because that's apparently harmful. What we're supposed to do is to to leave them until they're in their teens and then they go out and they get stabbed or they get shot or the police attack them and and fire on them because that's the way now that the the law and order has to function because it's taken out of the homes and so we've seen throughout history that attacks on the family are all part of Satan's essential program if he can break down the family unit um, then effectively we have no moral boundaries and compass and so on and of course that leads on to people being unthankful. You know, because why would we be thankful to anybody? Because everything we've achieved, we've done it ourselves. It's all been a result of what we've managed to accomplish. And people will blame their parents if they're not successful or you know, they'll complain they weren't given the opportunities or they were treated such and such as a child. And you know, It's so sad. You know, speaking of somebody who's been just incredibly blessed to be brought up in a Christian family with Christian parents, who set the rules, who who gave me boundaries, who told me what I could and couldn't do. Oh, I am so grateful for what they did. I am so grateful that they used the word no. I, I didn't like it at times. So none of us like it. But you know, who honestly can look back if we had good and loving parents when they said no to us, you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't wear that. Who honestly can look back and say that your life was impoverished because of that? You know, I I kind of grew up with these moral boundaries around my life that my parents had instilled upon me. Watching my non-Christian friends get into all sorts of problems and difficulties and regretting it and coming to me saying, oh, I'd like to be like you. Being just totally blown away because these people seem to have everything and yet, in reality, they had nothing. Now, people are unthankful today because they've lost that connection. Everything they have is what they believe they've earned and they deserved. And of course, unholy. Why would they care anything about God? I mean, you know, the Bible says that everything we have is from God. All things are from you and of your own do we give you, is what David said. But the world, no. They don't thank God. They don't care for God. They're not interested in anything that is holy. They even reject the whole notion of that something could be holy. And then we go on and we read that people 
Paul says, in the last days, in the days in which we live and since through history, will be without natural affection. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Let's look at these things. Well, the first thing here, I don't really need to talk much about this because you all know so well in which the, the world in which we live, that we live in a world where people are without natural affection. You know, it, it's got to the point that if you speak publicly about these things, potentially you're in danger. People start talking about hate crimes. Really? What about the people that are without natural affection that hate me because I speak about these things? Where's the tolerance there? See, the tolerance is all supposed to be one way, isn't it? People will tolerate anything unless it's Christianity, unless it's what the Bible says, unless it's the truth. Paul, in the beginning of the book of Romans, let me read this to you. I'm sure you're familiar. He says this, that speaking of the world in which we live, he says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I'm reading Romans one twenty two. if you want to follow along. But professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What a great apt description of the world in which we live. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. That's what the world has done. They've rejected our creator God who was so awesomely powerful that he could create and bring into existence all that we see. And they've made it into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and so on, saying that this is where we've come from. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness. Notice that it's God that has done that. God has said, okay, you've rejected me, so I'm going to give you over to whatever things you think you want to do. And it says, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is evolution right there, isn't it? That the world has loved, they've served and worshipped the creature and rejected the creator. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has said. Even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Notice that. It's an important statement. It's not saying just that which is against God, but that which is against that which is natural, normal. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their own lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. Wow. Verse 32 is interesting as well because it speaks about people who didn't actually do those things. It says, who knowing the judgment of God, they which commit such things are worthy of death, and not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. It speaks of people who don't necessarily get involved in, in those practices that have just been highlighted but actually we'll go along with it anyway. And that speaks with a large part of our, our population today. And speaking, of course, of these unnatural sexual relationships. Now, I, I do find this just 
strange that the world can adopt these things and, and, and so readily say this is normal. The Bible has already highlighted that these things are unnatural. Now, look, from a godly perspective, if there is a God, God has given us his rules, he said what is right, he created man, he created woman, he said that is what the marriage relationship should be, and the, a man should leave his father and mother, join to his wife, and so on. That's what the Bible says. So God has given us his position on this. But if you choose to reject God and say there is no God, then you only have the option of evolution. And which, whichever route you go down, anything other than a man and a woman procreating, having offspring, is unnatural. Because it's not, natu- it's not good for the evolutionary process. Whichever way you cut this, it's not natural. I mentioned this last week. Uh, I'll read this again. Uh, this was a decision just over a week or so ago that the Methodist Church has now made regarding conducting same-sex marriages. Um, the picture on the, the previous screen you saw, it says, The President of the Conference, the Reverend Bar- uh, Dr. Barbara Glasson, chairs the meeting of the Methodist Conference in Birmingham. And it says, the Methodist Conference has voted overwhelmingly, in principle, to permit the marriage of same-sex couples on Methodist premises by Methodist ministers. I mean, how can they reach that decision based upon what the Bible says? Now, if they reject the Bible and say, we don't want anything to do with the Bible, we don't care about God's rules, God's laws, God's standards, then they are free to do what they want. But I'm guessing they haven't made that decision. They haven't said, we're rejecting the Bible, we're rejecting God. And so they're trying to merge these two things together. How do they think that's going to work? It says, the move could prompt opposition among Anglican evangelicals to closer ties with the Methodists. Oh, no doubt. This is on Wednesday, this was a week or so ago, uh, the Methodist uh, Conference, which is meeting in Birmingham, voted by 247 votes to 48 I mean, my question is, who on earth are on this this panel, on this conference? Who are these people that are voting? And what right do they have to make a decision for the Methodist movement, which was established by John Charles Wesley, for the purposes of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? What right do they have to make this change, this amendment? And they've voted to endorse a report, God in love unites us. Oh, they love to use God's name, and they used to love to bring in love and things like that because it's all nice and happy. And but God is a God of love, but He's a God of justice. He's not going to sit back and let these things go idly by. It is by the marriage and relationships task group. They're the people that have proposed this. It promotes allowing same-sex couples to marry in Methodist churches and providing resources and liturgies to celebrate civil partnerships. I mean, this is in defiance of what God has said in the Bible. How do they think they'll get away with it? Other proposals in the report included prayers. I mean, just think about this for a minute. Prayers, prayers to God, because that's who else can you be praying to, for when marriages end in divorce and an understanding of cohabitation. An understanding of cohabitation. What, so the church is supposed to be accepting of that now? Because the society has changed. Well, look, society is not really that much different than it was in the times of the Roman Empire. No, nothing's going on now that wasn't going on then. We haven't suddenly, in the last 50 years, invented something that, that didn't exist. The Greeks, the Romans, they had all this stuff. 
Paul was aware of these things, and that's why he writes about it in the book of Romans. God has made it very clear, his position. Now, you can reject God's view and God's opinion. By all means, go do that. But don't claim you're Christian in doing it, please. As most of you will be aware, last weekend, there was the Pride London March. I saw this um, this Twitter post you see here. This is um, from the Foreign Office. Everyone should be able to live a life free of discrimination and persecution. And it says, retweet, retreat, sorry, try again, retweet if you agree. And obviously this is it. Okay, everyone should be able to live a life free of discrimination and persecution. Great, I agree with that. So as a believer in Jesus Christ and as somebody who follows the Bible that has not changed for the past 2,000 years, I want the right to say that there are things that I do not accept. Am I allowed that right? Am I allowed that freedom? Am I allowed to say that I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman only? And that anything other than that is a perversion of what God intended? Should I, am I allowed to live free of discrimination and persecution? Or no? Because saying those things suddenly puts me in a difficult position because somebody will say, oh, but you're, you're not being tolerant. Of course, they're being tolerant in the way they tell me that. What they mean is I'm not tolerating their position, but of course they're not tolerating my position. Notice, you may see there, this is the Pride London 2019 highlights from this year's parade. 50 years on from the Stonewall uprising in New York. La 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 la. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with Stonewall. Yeah, and they're celebrating all these things from 1969. And the Stonewall kind of, you know, stood up and they wanted to have their say. And, you know, you, you do, you can Google it and find the history if you want to. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure that you're aware also that it was in that decade that Christianity effectively was outlawed in the American classroom. And you can look at countless numbers of charts and you'll see the SATS test dived. Okay? From 1963, you know, the, the time when prayer was outlawed in American schools, where carrying a Bible was no longer allowed. Okay? And you see that the SATS test declined. That the sexually transmitted diseases from 1963 all increased. Okay, if you look again, the, the birth rates for unwanted girls again just went straight up. Uh, sorry, unwed girls, not unwanted girls. Uh, birth rates for unwed girls, girls out of marriage having children, shot up from that point. You see, you took the Bible out, you took prayer out, and suddenly there is no framework, there is no boundaries anymore. George Washington said this, Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And yet that's what America has tried to do. That's what this country is trying to do. They're trying to remove the moral framework which has built society and they expect that everything's going to carry on and be just wonderful, thank you. No, it won't happen. It's just a, a look from really 1962-1963 of how violent crime increased. This is just in one area of America. But it's not different. You, we can look all over the world. Whenever you remove God, you remove accountability. And people will do whatever they want. And the problem, of course, as we've said already, is the wickedness of man's own heart. 
It's been said before that nations go from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to greater courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, and then from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and dependency back again into bondage. And that's right where we are now, I believe, as a nation. That was Alexander Tyler in 1750 said that. You know, this constant circle uh, that you see going on with nations. You know, and we've come full circle. We, we, we're so far away as a nation from the times when we had great evangelists walking these shores, proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, where people were readily going out and getting saved. Interestingly, often not in the churches, but on the hills around towns outside. There was one minister that came to a church that I happened to know back in Kent. He was refused to speak in that church. Funny enough, another minister, evangelist in my own lifetime, was also refused to speak in that same church. Um, but this particular um, individual is George Whitfield. And he went outside, preached outside, and a multitude gave their lives to the Lord. You see, this social decay that we see going on at the moment, we've got this crisis of lawlessness. I mean, you've only got to pick up a paper. I mean, I, Adrian and I, when we pick up the Metro on a regular basis, we see the reports in there of what's going on in London particularly. Um, some of you may not hear as much, but it's on the national news anyway. Um, but the, the knife crime in London, I mean, every day people are being murdered. These are young lives just being just wiped out. The, the loss of economic discipline, rising bureaucracy. Are these things again? I mean, this is, this is just stuff that's been written and spoken of, and we, we're right in the middle of this. The cultural decline, decline of education, weakening of cultural foundations, a loss of respect for traditional values, and again, the moral decay, the rise of immorality, the decay of religious belief, devaluing of human life. And I cannot for a moment think that this government is going to get away with the decision that's been made in the last few days regarding Northern Ireland and the abortion law there. I just, that is just, just unbelievable that they've had the audacity to go and do that. Again, without natural affection, truth-speakers, false accusers, incontinent fears, despisers of those that are good. Uh, let's just have a look at a couple of these and then we're gonna, we'll stop. Uh, truce breakers, again, <laughs> we see it everywhere, in business, in, in family relationships, all sorts of things. You know, lawyers are very happy, they make a lot of money out of people that are truce breakers. And this leads on from all the things we've said. False accusers, slanderers, certainly characteristic of our times. And, you know, it's a daily newspaper thing where people are making false accusations about somebody else. And, you know, sometimes there's, there's no gain on their behalf for doing it. Incontinence. This simply means without self-control. And that's exactly where we are. We've lost the ability to control. So there is no conscience now within most people that stops them, that checks them. So characteristic of the society we're living in. Again, this word fierce 
meaning savage or untamed, brutal. You know, it's, it's, the world has become savage. It's not a nice place to live. Again, the streets, the schools, unsafe. I sort of read that knife crime, particularly London, is a daily occurrence. But all around the area, you hear of these things going on. And of course, you know, look at our own lifetime. We see many of these things, but we do seem to be getting worse and worse on a yearly basis now. And despisers of those that are good. Let's leave it there because we'll pick it up next week, um, carrying on in this list. It's it's scary. It really is quite scary that Paul, some 2,000 years ago, gave us this list saying this is how the world is, or how the world is going to be. But you know what? When we see these things, lift up your heads. That's what Jesus said. You know, when we see the things that are going on, he spoke about in Jerusalem and around the world. But even these things, this is a warning. This is a reminder that we are living in the last days. That means that our Savior is coming back for us soon. And that should give us great courage and great hope. Next week, if the Lord willing, we'll get on, we'll finish this chapter, and we'll be talking about the Word of God. The Word of God that had given Timothy that that foundation in the first place. So there's some light at the end of this dark tunnel, but let's, for now, bow our hearts. Lord, we just pray that you help us to live godly in the midst of the darkness of this age. Father, give us the boldness and the courage to stand up for that which is true. Father, help us also to remember, Lord, that we are to be salt and light in this world. And the world may not like the message that we bring, but until it is outlawed, until they tell us we cannot speak these things, we will publicly and boldly declare it. And even when they do, because your word is truth, we won't fear man. Lord, we love you, we love your word, and we know it to be true. Lord, help us to be bold, to be strong, to be not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. And we pray, Lord, that by your grace, people that are caught up in these things we've been talking about this morning, people that, Lord, are despisers of good things, Lord, we pray that even their eyes will be opened and that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.